right, good morning. If you would, please go ahead and get your Bibles out. Turn to Psalm chapter 11. Welcome to use the Black Pew Bible in front of you. Turn towards kind of the middle of the Bible, maybe a little bit before the middle. You should find the Psalms. The big numbers are the chapter numbers. The little numbers are the verse numbers. We'll be in chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Psalm chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Let's read together. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. The foundations are destroyed. What can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous. But his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for your totally sufficient, inspired, and inerrant word. We ask that right now you would help us to hear from you. Help us learn what it means and how to take refuge in you. Whether we're hurting now, which is many of us, or whether we are in the good times, Help us to see that we need this truth. Let us feast on it. Shape us and glorify your name in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when you hear tornado sirens going off in the middle of the night, what do you do? Maybe you ignore it. You tell yourself it's just another false alarm and you roll back over. Your confidence is in the fact that these things tend to just work out. And this time won't be any different. Maybe you're slightly more alerted by the sirens and you jump up and you turn on the local weather. You're mostly relaxed, but knowledge is power and you take confidence in the fact that you can make rational, good decisions when you gather in all of the facts. Or maybe you keep bicycle helmets beside your bed for such an occasion. The siren goes off, you jump out of bed, you strap those bad boys on, you you grab the mattress, you jump in the tub, you're going to be safe. Now, seeing as how I don't work for WHNT, what is my point this morning? Well, my point is simple. It's a simple question. When you are in danger and you are afraid, what's your safety plan? What are you going to do? When life sirens are going off, where do you take refuge? Of course, you know where I'm going with this. It's going to be sounding kind of cliche to your ears this morning, but brothers and sisters, reminders are good for us. It's no problem for God, and it's good and safe for us. Amen? Okay, so this morning, let's learn to say with David, when I am afraid, I will take refuge in the Lord. When I'm afraid, I'll take refuge in the Lord. I have three points for you this morning. Point number one, 
the wrong refuge. Point number two, the Lord sees. And point number three, the Lord judges. So point number one, the wrong refuge. We don't know everything about the background of this psalm, but we can pull out a few things. We know that David wrote it. It's also obvious that David is in some sort of trouble. Verse 1, he's being told to flee for the hills before the wicked point their arrows at him and shoot their next volley at him. It's also very likely that this psalm was written while David was in Jerusalem, probably during the time of Saul's reign when things were really bad, or possibly during the time when his son Absalom was leading a coup against his throne. And so during those times, uh, Jerusalem, and by extension all of Israel, things were getting pretty bad, pretty ugly. That's where the end of verse 3 informs us. Look there. It says, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, the Hebrew word here for foundations refers to the structures of society. You don't immediately pick up on that in your English. But it's the structure of society. It's the, the pillars that hold up the nation of God's people. Well, they're starting to crumble. They're starting to bow under some pressure. It's kind of like the foundations in our own society that we know are starting to give way under our feet as we speak. Children are being given over to the technopoly. Many schools are tolerating or promoting godless gender ideologies. The church's teachings are being marginalized in the mind of the church. That's what we see happening today. Well, the same kind of thing is happening in Jerusalem, only it's unique because this is God's people in God's promised land. God's standard of justice is being ignored across the board. Families are failing to pass down the faith. Altars to false gods are being popped up all over the hills of Israel. And then you have these direct assaults against the main institutions of Israel. Could be talking about like when Saul killed the high priest and then he killed 85 other priests. He could be referring to the time when Absalom was sitting at the city gates and he's, he's whipping up the people into this anger and he leads an insurrection against the throne. The family is failing in Israel. The priesthood is totally rocked. The monarchy is starting to topple. Again, we don't know the specifics of this psalm, but it's clear that as the foundations are starting to crumble, the wicked are getting the reins, and they are now in charge. And as a result, the righteous are not safe. David's situation is rapidly getting worse. The sirens are starting to go off, and so he needs to act now. So what does he do? Well, David enacts his safety plan. In verse 1, he says, in the Lord I take refuge. The same phrase can be translated, in the Lord I trust, or in the Lord I hope. Really? Like, that's it. That's your safety plan. That doesn't really sound like much of a safety plan. Like, what does that even mean, practically speaking? You can't just say, I take refuge in the Lord, and everything's okay now. Well, apparently, some kind of friend or advisor felt the same way. He's like, cool story, David. Here's what we actually need to do. And so he comes up with a different suggestion. And he tells David, just run for the hills as fast as you can. We need to get out of here. All is lost. How can the righteous stay behind in Jerusalem with everything crumbling around us? And the psalm tells us that these words are spoken directly 
to David's heart, to his soul. This advisor apparently knows how to pull his heartstrings. He knows how to say things in just the right way that David really is stirred up and cut to his heart. Come on, brother. It's over. There's no reason for you to stay here and suffer and die. If you'll just follow my voice, everything will be okay. And that seems so innocent. But the funny thing is, is is that David isn't only facing one enemy. The, The one enemy is pretty obvious. There's people hiding in the shadows with bows and arrows, figuratively speaking, but also in one sense literally, killing the righteous, finding opportunities to undermine the righteous, taking over. That's happening. That's easy. But those arrows aren't half as dangerous as a godless tongue. And that's not an exaggeration. I I mean that. Death is a terrible thing, but it is not worse than disobeying God. Jesus tells us, don't fear those who can destroy the body, but fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So here's the point. David, for whatever reason, knows that fleeing into the mountains at this time is the wrong thing to do. God is asking him to do one thing, while his friend is advising him to do another thing. Doing what God says seems to be crazy, while this advisor seems so sensible and so safe. To take refuge in God, then, means believing that it is better to obey God and trust the outcome than it is to forsake him in search of a better outcome. I want to say that again. It's a key idea this morning. To take refuge in God means believing that it is better to obey God and trust the outcome than it is to forsake him in search of a better outcome. For this very reason, brothers and sisters, that sweet, tender voice of a supposed friend can be one of the deadliest things on this planet. Like the snake in the garden, the world will cozy up next to your ear and calmly and so convincingly, in a way that cuts right to the heart, say, did God really say that? I think really this. The world is full of advisors whose counsel sounds so logical. It sounds so good. It, it, It must be wisdom. But then... It's wrong, isn't it? Haven't you experienced this in your own life? When your marriage is going through a rough patch, the world says, why face these difficulties in your marriage when you could be so much happier? Don't you know that you've got to love yourself first? And there's a logic to it. When the budget is tight, the world says, why don't you cut some corners at work? Or on your taxes. It's no big deal. Everyone does it. And also, while we're at it, why are you still giving money to the church? God knows you've got to take care of yourself first. He doesn't want you to do that. The world always seems to know what God wants, don't they? When somebody mistreats you, the world says, you need to defend yourself and tag them back. If they hit you, you hit them back harder. Don't let people push you around. Doesn't the Bible say an eye for an eye? 
When you're tempted towards sin that you know will destroy you, the world says you should follow your heart and live without regrets, man. Don't don't be that kind of guy who apologizes for being yourself. God loves you just the way you are. We could give examples all morning. I mean, the whole Christian life is utter foolishness to the unbeliever. Why are we fighting against our desires? Why are we fighting against the culture on homosexuality and abortion and promiscuity? Why do we accept persecution when we could just go with the flow? Why do we invest our time and talent and treasure in a heaven that doesn't exist for the glory of a God who does not exist? We are, in the eyes of the world, most to be pitied. We're so silly, those Christians, wasting the one life they get. Just eat and drink for tomorrow you die. Live it up. Find a way to cope. That's what we do. In short, there are all sorts of different refuges to trust in. Money, self, worldly philosophies, all sorts of stuff to turn to. And people out there in the world are all too happy to tell you all about them. And you need to know this about yourself, that when you are afraid and when you are in danger and the pressure is on, there is a temptation, isn't there? There there is a vulnerability there to want to listen to these voices. It's so easy to stand on solid ground when everything is fine. But when the pressure is actually on you, you're going to find out what you're really standing on. When the heavy load of suffering comes... The world's refuges sound so good, but they will not protect you. Brothers and sisters, we must measure all counsel against the counsel of God's word. If there is ever a conflict between the two, we must take refuge in God and in his word and obey him and listen to him and nothing else, even if it is scary. In our text, David chose to trust in God and obey, and obey him instead of finding refuge somewhere else even when his life was on the line. Now, of course, our enemies are not shooting literal arrows at us, but we do wrestle against a wicked world, against a wicked flesh, and against a wicked devil, just as Andrew prayed. And those things desire to destroy us. And you know what that specific thing is or things in your life right now. You know how the world is drawing you away from God. You know how you are suffering for the sake of Christ. You know what temptations that you are wrestling with. It seems like day in and day out. We must take refuge in God no matter what comes. So how are we going to do that? How are we going to find the fortitude to trust him and obey him and follow him, with all these other ideas surrounding me? What enables David to take refuge in the Lord when he is in danger and afraid? And I think as we answer that question, we'll be helped greatly. So point number two, the Lord sees. Point number two, the Lord sees. Here's how David finds strength. David's strength comes from knowing God. God tells us who he is. 
He tells us what he has done. He tells us what he will do. There are those who know God and who believe him and who trust in him. And there are those who don't. Verse 3 says, look there. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. What is the God in your head like? Who is he? Is he frail and weak? Is he just sitting up in heaven, kind of crossing his fingers, like hoping everything works out? Like, man, I hope those Christians do the right thing. I hope, I hope they're safe against the enemies. I hope no one snatches them out of my hand. I hope things don't go badly. Is the God in your head too distracted to see your problems? It's got all of these people to tend to and all of these prayers to answer. And Surely there's no way that he has time to deal with you. Does your God lack an attention span? Is the God in your head apathetic? Does he just not care? You know, he, he made everything. He wound up the clock of creation, and now it's just kind of doing its thing. And he stepped away, and he's just kind of watching. He sees you, you know, rolling around like a worm, but he doesn't care. Is that what your God is like? Your sickness, your sin battling, your suffering, don't bother him. He can't be moved. Or is the God in your head the omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, sovereign king of the universe who is presiding over all things under the earth, on the earth, and over the earth? Is that your God? He created everything from nothing. He sets limits for the seas and tells them, you don't get to go any further than that. He lifts valleys up, and he takes mountains and he levels them. He sends the sun on its course every single day, and he sends electrons on their course every single nanosecond. He holds the universe together by the power of his word, and he is sustaining every single breath, every single heartbeat that is happening in this room right now. And if he stopped, we would stop. He calls things into existence that do not exist. He makes barren women into mothers. He makes the lame into runners. He makes the sinner into God lovers. He appoints the time of death. He appoints the time of resurrection. God defeats whole armies without a sword. He causes demons to commit suicide and pigs. He's been known to make kings of the world crawl on all fours and eat grass. He has caused men to survive furnaces dens of lions, and the grave itself. So tell me, what is the God in your head like? Because if he's that God, is anything too hard for him? Is he disinterested in the events of human history? Is he not all-knowing? Is he not there? Are there other refuges more reliable than him? But Will, that's, that's all good news for someone else but he doesn't seem to see me in all of my stuff. Maybe you're still holding on to that. But friend, that is a lie. And it comes straight from hell. The king sees it all. 
He's not sitting in some room behind some closed door. What does the psalm tell us? It says that he's sitting in his throne in heaven, above everything. He looks down and sees it all. Nothing goes unnoticed, and nothing catches God by surprise. David writes elsewhere, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me is night, even darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is a light with you. Friend, the Lord sees you. He sees exactly what you were going through. And he is deeply committed to you and deeply concerned with that thing that is going on. God is peering into every dark corner of the universe, into every dark corner of the human heart. Everything, everything is under his magnifying glass. He sees it thoroughly. This God, nothing escapes his gaze. Nothing happens apart from his command. Nothing is too hard for him. God is God. And if we know a God like that, then what can we be afraid of? If that God is for us, then who can be against us? But the question is, is do you know him like that? That's where the rubber is going to meet the road. David knows him like that. That's awesome. Do you know him like that? Because you can. Do you study his word? Do you apply yourself to Sunday school and to the Sunday sermon? Do you lean in? Are you trying to take notes if you're a note taker? Are you, are you listening to it maybe a second time? Are you trying to get rid of the distractions? Are you going to wait to look at that phone notification at another time? Because I need to know this God. I need to know his word. Do you read good books in your free time? Or do you populate it with other stuff that you know is useless? Do you pray? Do you depend on him and ask him, Lord, increase my knowledge. I want to grow in my knowledge and affection for you. Would you help me? Do you talk about these things with your spouse? Do you talk about this with your brothers and sisters whenever you leave from here? It might be hard for you to trust in God in times of trouble because you just don't know him. I'm not even saying that you're not a believer. You may be a believer, but you just don't know him as deeply and as personally, as intimately as, as you know you should. He, doesn't, he describes himself as a rock, but you don't know him as a rock. Pursue him. Take baby steps, one day at a time. And over time, you are going to find that you are amazed at the God that you know and that you love and who is a refuge for you. There's more to say. Not only do we need to know what God is like, but we need to know what God is doing. Like, like what is he up there on his throne doing? Where is he going with all of this? The end of verse 3 tells us, David says that God is testing the children of man. We're going to take this through the end of the psalm, which brings us to point number three. 
the Lord judges. The Lord judges. If you want to test how bouncy a ball is, you can simply drop it and then see how bouncy it is. If you want to know how pure some gold is, you can pass it through the flames and whatever is remaining is the real deal while all the dross has melted away. Well, the children of man, that's humankind, are like objects in the hands of God. And God, in his infinite wisdom, tests mankind by putting us through a series of trials. And he does this for a few reasons, but I want to just zoom in and focus on one, the one that's most relevant to our text. The righteous are what we might call anti-fragile objects. The more you strain and test an anti-fragile object, the less fragile it gets. Right? For, for example, when you work out, you tear up your muscles. But what happens? Well, the result is actually that your muscles get stronger. They come back better. So it is when the Lord tests the righteous. We are anti-fragile objects in the hands of our Creator. What this means, brothers and sisters, is that there is a purpose to your pain. Why does God allow foundations to be destroyed and arrows to be aimed? Listen to how God's word explains how trials are actually strengthening the righteous in a couple other places in the New Testament. You probably know them, but they're so good, so needed for our hearts. So listen. James writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Count it all joy when you pass through all kinds of trials, even your trial. Why? Because it is producing something for you. It is producing steadfastness, kind of like a, a toughness. And when that toughness has its full effect, you will be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Translation, God puts you through various trials so that you will continue to lean into him and become more like Christ. That's awesome. That's a purpose to my pain and a purpose to your pain. Paul writes elsewhere, we rejoice in our sufferings. Again, rejoicing. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame kind of crazy right like the more that you are suffering and leaning into christ the tougher you're getting the more endurance you have the more holy your character is the more hope you actually have you think it's the opposite bad things are happening we've lost all hope give up bad things are happening my hope is increasing because i'm getting to know christ better I'm being sanctified more and more, and I'm finding that this rock can withstand anything. My hope is soaring, and in that I rejoice. Incredible that we can endure suffering and actually be helped. David writes elsewhere, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Man, we got theological categories for that. 
I don't know about you, when suffering comes to me, I'm not typically thinking, rejoicing and, oh, that was a good thing. Thank you, man, have another. Like, it's, it's helping me love your word. I was astray from you. I was totally ignoring you. I wasn't living with any kind of godly character. I was weak. I was dependent on the world. And then you came and you did exactly what I needed. You gave me affliction. Thank you. That's good. No, we're not like that. It's hard. But the truth is amazing that God is doing something with your suffering for you right now. And shouldn't that do something to alleviate our fears? Shouldn't that do something to alleviate our suffering when we're in the midst of it? Like, it doesn't make the pain go away. But I know God's using it. She calls me to slow down and continually entrust myself to God and follow him faithfully in the midst of no matter what is going on. He's doing me good. Your sickness, the death of loved ones, even the sin that you're battling day in and day out, the futility of your work, the insults from that family member or coworker because you're a Christian. We come to God and we say, why are you doing any of this? Just take it all away. And that's right, that's good. We should go to him. We should say, Lord, what are you doing? But the truth is that it is all coming from the hand of a God who loves you and who is shaping you and who is strengthening you. Now, do not misunderstand me. I am not saying that God is the author of evil or, he, or that he is in any way morally culpable for the suffering that you experience. How can I say that? Well, I can say that Because it's also true that these trials come about through the evil intentions of wicked people and wicked powers. It is the wicked who are notching their arrows and aiming them at David. It is the wicked who love violence. The world, Satan, the flesh, they hate God. And they are actively trying to destroy the righteous. And all of those examples I just gave. That's evil. But what the wicked mean for evil, God means for good. Said another way, what the wicked have designed in order to destroy you, God has simultaneously designed in order to strengthen you. It's incredible. This doesn't get the wicked off the hook either. Because that would be wrong. That would be unjust. No, when God examines the wicked under his magnifying glass, he is repulsed by what he sees. You know, don't hate the sinner, but hate the sin. There's, there's, a, there's a point that that is true, of course. We shouldn't hate anyone. But I hope you know that God has hatred towards certain people. A hatred towards the wicked. I'm not making that up. Look at verse 5. It says that his soul hates them. The wicked, whether wicked people or the devil or death itself, the wicked are not anti-fragile objects in the hands of a loving, strengthening creator. No, they are objects of wrath, destined for complete and utter destruction. That's going to happen. Do you see the contrast between these two objects? Anti-fragile objects that God is strengthening, 
objects that are going to be destroyed. It is a privilege to suffer as a Christian. Because everybody's going to suffer. We live in a sin-stricken world. It's coming. But our suffering does us good, and in that we rejoice. While the suffering of the wicked does them no good, and they despair. All of their suffering is just a foretaste of something that is to them just a, a fraction, one of them a millionth of the, of the suffering that they are going to experience through all out, through eternity. That's the only thing that their suffering gives them, a foretaste. So just because God is sovereignly using the wicked for the good ends of the righteous, it does not follow that the wicked will not be judged. God, according to his perfect justice, will certainly judge the wicked. And again, I want you to hear in that. Wicked men, spiritual enemies, death itself, sin in our flesh, he will judge it all, which is simultaneously their penalty and our salvation. Do you know that? That God is saving you through judgment. For a time, God is sovereignly orchestrating, completely in control, overseeing a season of testing for our good. But one day, a day that is sooner than we all think, his forbearance and patience towards the wicked will come to an end. And the dam of his wrath will break over their heads, marking the end of our testing and the beginning of their eternal torment. That time is coming. There will be a switch over. Look at the different pictures of God's wrath in verse 6. Look there. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. God rained fire and sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah for their sins, and he will do it again. The hot winds of God's judgment will blow throughout all the earth at its appointed time. And the righteous, they're going to stand like oak trees. They're going, to, they're going to remain. While the hot wind of God's judgment will pick up the wicked and will carry them away like a bunch of rotten leaves, out of sight, out of our presence and out of his presence. And the righteous, on that day, we're going to receive a cup of salvation, overflowing in blessings, a cup of of wine that will gladden our hearts at the feast of the Lamb. But the wicked's portion, their cup, is going to be a cup of wrath, a cup like the one in Jeremiah, where God says, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink it and stagger and be crazed because of the sword I am sending them. Or like the cup in Job, let their eyes see their destruction and let them drink of the wrath of the Almighty. Brothers and sisters, the things that are haunting you today will be cast away from you and burned tomorrow. Nausea, chronic illness, sexual immorality, anxiety, mocking, persecution, temptation, death, it will all be destroyed, gone. How foolish then is it for us 
to fear the things that are soon going to be the kindle for the fires of hell. God already has victory. So trust in Him. Take your refuge in Him. Hope in God, because God will ultimately deliver you, and you will be vindicated on that day, and you will see His face, and it will have been worth it. You will know that you made the right decision by saying no to the world and all its solutions and trusting in Him. You'll see His face. Isn't that what the very end of the psalm says? Look there. The upright shall behold his face. And why will the upright or the righteous behold his face? Look at the rest of verse 7. For or because the Lord is righteous and he loves righteous deeds. Listen, the chances of God preserving you rest on the very power and character of God. God cannot deny himself. God is himself righteous. He loves righteous deeds. And he must preserve righteous ones. That's not just his duty. It's who he is. It's in his very nature. You can count on that being the case. Because God oversees the righteous, the righteous will see God. So, the fact that God is righteous... He's going to preserve the righteous and they'll see his face. That's good news, right? Awesome. Well, yes and no, actually. Uh, This truth presents a little bit of a problem for us. And it's simple. How can you be sure that you're going to be counted righteous? When you're placed under the magnifying glass on Judgment Day, what is God going to see? To borrow the language of of our psalm, will God love me or will his soul hate me? Because I don't want to share a portion with the wicked and I do want to behold his face in heaven. So how am I going to be counted righteous? Let me start by telling you the most popular wrong answer. You will not earn God's favor on the basis of your own merits and your own efforts. There's no way. You can't do it. You don't even meet your own standards of goodness, let alone God's standard of goodness. Have you ever done something that you knew was wrong? Or have you ever failed to do that thing that you knew was right and you knew you should have done? You saw it. But not only did you see it, God saw it. Because he sees everything from his heavenly throne. And he sees that sin. He sees all of your sin. He sees more of your sin than you see. And his righteousness far exceeds our own. So to try to say that you're going to be good enough to impress God and earn your place with him is foolishness. But David tells us a better way. Tells us a better, a better way in another psalm. He says, Blessed are those whose iniquities are not counted against them. Their sins aren't held against them. They will be counted Righteous. The thing that ultimately distinguishes the wicked from the righteous is grace, unearned favor that God has on someone. And who does he have that on? He has grace towards those who take refuge in Jesus Christ. Jesus is God in the flesh. And he came to earth and he lived a perfect life. And then wicked men 
without any right whatsoever, took him, and they killed him. When he was faced with that danger, he didn't flee to the mountains. He didn't take refuge in all these other things. He took refuge in God the Father. It says that he entrusted himself to the Father and that he was obedient, even obedient to the point of death on the cross. There was nothing that was going to deter him from going to that cross. This refuge, that refuge, no way. I'm following the Father, no matter what comes. And he did. And he died on the cross. And the fire and sulfur that you deserve to have poured on your head was poured on his head. The scorching wind of judgment that should have blown us away from the Father and into the pits of hell, that scorching wind blew the sun away from the Father's presence. The bitter cup of wrath that you were supposed to drink, Jesus drank all the way to the dregs. And Jesus' refuge still did not abandon him, even in the grave. It turns out that even death itself was only a trial. It was just a moment. And then his refuge came to the horror of the devil and raised Jesus to new life. And now he has a glorified, imperishable body. Satan's running out of ideas. (laughs) What else can he do that the Father cannot turn out for our good and for the good of the Son? Friends, if you will take refuge in Christ by believing on him, his righteousness will be credited to your account and you will be saved. And the Lord will smile on you every day of your life, especially in your suffering. And he will deliver you from every evil thing, all suffering on the last day. And you will behold his face, the sweetest most glorious promise in all the universe is yours and nothing can take it away. So, take refuge in him. Let's pray. Lord, you are a mighty fortress. You are an anchor in times of trouble. Help us to see you and to know you, and to know the judgment that will come. Use even this sermon to spur us on towards a deeper knowledge of you and affection for you that we might stand firm all the way to the end and comfort us with a promise that we will see you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.